This morning's scripture is from Matthew chapter 13, starting in verse 53 through 14 down to verse 12. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there, and coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue, so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison. And for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod, so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guest, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison. His head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. This is God's word. Amen. You may have a seat, and if you have your Bibles, you can open up with us to Matthew chapter 13. I'm going to put this here. There we go. Now, this is going to be an interesting sermon. First of all, let me uh, commend um, the men who showed up today. Well done. Those who showed up who have a wife that's at the women's retreat. For those who are new, we're typically not this testosterone-rich of a church. Uh, We have a big group of women that are up north uh, worshiping right now, and and, um, we uh, pray that they're having a great time, and I'm sure they are. Uh, but good job, guys, especially car show, no mom or no wife. I mean, boom, well done. I wish I had my phone. I'd be like, take a picture and go, yeah, that's what we're talking about. So uh, well done. But we're going to be um, in Matthew 13 today, and uh, I know it's not going to go well for me when I'm like crying in the back of the uh, sanctuary before we worship, and I'm not typically a crier, so get ready. You might have some tears flying today, but... Mine, not yours. This is the final sermon in um, what's book two. So we go straight through books of the Bible. We're going through Matthew, taking a while. We divide it into four books. This is the last sermon in book two. And then we're going to take a break, do a little five-part series, and return to Matthew uh, at the end of November. And up in this point, what we've seen in really across 12 and 13 is that Jesus um, has, well, really even before that, he's been shunned by everybody. He was shunned by uh, the irreligious guys, if you remember back when he uh, got in a boat, went across the sea to basically Gentile land, and a bunch of guys loved their bacon more than they loved Jesus, and they said, can you leave now that you killed all of our pigs? So he left. Gentiles don't like him. 
the religious guys, all the Pharisees and the scribes who love the rules, they didn't like him. Um, and so, basically, what we have uh, in this chapter, in this text today, is uh, the absolute kind of definitive rejection of Jesus from his hometown of Nazareth. Now, uh, if you don't know, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Okay, He was raised in Nazareth for 30-ish years, lived there. He began to minister and lived in Capernaum, which is a coastal town on the Sea of Galilee. Then he died in Jerusalem. So there's four cities that typically the stories of Jesus kind of localize. And Nazareth is what would be considered his hometown. It's, it's also considered maybe the armpit of Israel, right? It's not a real great place. Uh, it's pretty small. It's pretty um, obscure. It's not economically thriving. It's impoverished. A lot of blue-collar workers and, and not much... Uh, cosmopolitan kind of, um, you know, it's not the uh, center of the Roman world, at least at this time. Now, uh, Jesus shows up, they, they welcome their native son who has gained some popularity, uh, and he comes into the synagogue and he begins to teach. Now, this is the last recorded time uh, in the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus teaches in a synagogue. And if you Look in the Gospel of Luke, the very beginning of Gospel of Luke in chapter 4, Nazareth was the first time that he preached or taught in a synagogue. And scholars argue about whether this is the same event or this is a different event or what happened because they're a little bit different. In the Gospel of Luke, when he goes into the synagogue in Nazareth that time, um, it records that he basically is sitting there, he stood up, he took the... uh, a prophecy roll, which was a scroll, sorry, it was a scroll of Isaiah, and he read this out of the book of Isaiah. He said, because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor, so he's reading the Old Testament, right? Because he's anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor, he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of the sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He rolls up the scroll, hands it back to the attendant, sits down, and says, today the Scripture has been fulfilled. Which people are, what? Like, you're not just reading from Isaiah, like, you are what they're talking about? And that upset them a little bit. Really upset them. So much so that they freak out, they take Jesus to a cliff, which is where this picture's from, and they try to throw him off. Okay, so... He escapes mysteriously. He just basically says he made his way through the crowd and that was it, right? He just gets away. But the point is, Nazareth didn't like him. Whether this is the same event or a different event, what we have here is an exclamation point on the fact that Jesus has been rejected. Could be bookends, rejection, rejection, whatever. Right now, everyone who could reject him has rejected him, including the one people you would think would be okay with him, his hometown of Nazareth. Now, rejection, we talk about the concept of rejection. When you're rejected as an individual or, or, or by an individual or by a group, and that's really when, I think by definition, it's something like when your affections are uh, refused and you are, as a person, not acceptable, deemed unworthy. And everyone probably at some point in life has experienced a, a sense of rejection of some kind. 
whether it be from a girlfriend or a boyfriend or from a family member or from uh, just a, a, a clicky group that you weren't a part of, right? Everyone has experienced rejection. And the truth is, if you think about this, if sinless Jesus, right? Perfect Jesus, do-nothing-wrong Jesus experienced rejection, we shouldn't be surprised when we go through life and experience rejection of some kind. We're sinful. He was perfect. He did everything right, and He still was rejected. So it's something we're going to endure, and it can be very passive, right? Passive rejection is more like people ignoring you, or you're just passed over, maybe at a job, just maybe as, as a social group. But then there's obviously very active rejection when you are deliberately excluded, when you are misrepresented, or when you're accused of things. Jesus experienced all of that. He was not only rejected for who He claimed to be, He was rejected for what He taught. And Jesus, I mean, the guy was accused of being unlawful. He was accused of being immoral. He was accused of being demon-possessed. He was accused of being too radical. He was accused of being a drunk. I mean, he was accused of all kinds of things. You're too religious. You're not religious enough. It was all over the place. But now what we have is Jesus being rejected by his hometown for being too ordinary. For being too normal. For being too human. Right? Men are fickle. And they will reject you for whatever reason, though we certainly try everything we can to avoid that. Now, Jesus doesn't care much about opinions. There was a Pharisee actually comes up to him at some point and says, I know you don't care about the opinions of men, but Jesus does not care about opinions, but guess what? We do. Sinfully so. All of us, and maybe I'm just going to speak for myself today, and that's perfectly fine. All of us, me, fears rejection. And one reason that I included the verses in chapter 14, right? Because you read that, you're like, why are we talking about the John the Baptist? Well, if you read that carefully, what you see is that there's this guy named Herod. Not Herod the Great, but Herod Antipas. He fears rejection. Now, Herod's wealthy. Herod's powerful. Herod's got all kinds of authority and, and fame. And yet... His decision-making is governed by the fear of men. At one point, he wants to behead John, but he's scared, it says. He's fearful of the people, so he doesn't do it. Fearful that they will maybe rebel, or just fearful that they'll reject him. Then, when he does this really dumb commitment to say, hey, I'll give you whatever you want, she's like, this being his quote, daughter. I want John the Baptist's head. He doesn't want to behead him at that point. He doesn't want to kill him. But why does he do it? Because he had said something and fearful of being rejected by everyone at the party, all the respectable people he loves, fearful that they're going to think something poorly of him, that they're going to reject him, he does it. So even a powerful king with all kinds of money who can really do what he wants, fears rejection. So if the fear of men's approval can lead a king to kill, it can certainly lead us to do things like lie. You realize that's why we lie. 
We lie because in that moment, we want the person we're speaking to to think differently or better of us. That's why we're lying. And usually or often, we do much worse. But every time that we do that, we are in that moment confessing, no matter what we actually confess, we are in that moment declaring that, you know what, Jesus, I really don't need you. We're rejecting Jesus in that moment. Now, I think a lot of pastors would probably, and I've read commentators to this end, would approach this text and go, you know what, we can learn a lot about how to deal with rejection by how Jesus dealt with rejection. I'm sure we could. And I'm sure that would be a fantastic sermon. But we're not Jesus in the story. Right? You always got to remember that when we're reading, like, we certainly have the Spirit of Christ in us, and we certainly have uh, empowerment to, to live according to Christ's example as we depend upon the Spirit, but we're not Jesus in this story. We're not the rejected ones. We're the ones who reject. So we should probably look at the Nazarenes a little more closely, and not just about Jesus and how He handled His rejection. Because we often reject the Savior. And I realize that we go, well, I know, anyone that doesn't believe in Jesus, they've rejected the Savior. But what about believers' rejection? What about the idea of, and I'm not talking about eternal rejection, I'm talking about everyday living Christian rejection. Maybe a little more passive, but just as destructive. I am actually convinced that the root cause of a lot of our spiritual deadness in our faith, a lot of our fear, a lot of our anxiety, is a growing unbelief in the Savior that we say we believe in. So let's take a look at these Nazarenes and see. And maybe this will strike you. It's going to destroy me. It already has and continues to up until this morning. Um, It goes without saying, but I'll say it. Every relationship you have goes through stages. If you've been married for any amount of time, you know this all too well. Okay? Now, the first stage that we experience in any relationship is what we'll just call romance, right? It's the it's the romance honeymoon super awesome stage. Okay? Everyone likes that stage. It's not a difficult stage to be in. It's an enjoyable stage to be in. It's an exciting stage to be in. It's easy to be in relationship at this point. You typically only see the best in the person, and that's because you only want to see the best in the person at that point. They can do no wrong, typically, or you just kind of dismiss it. Oh, it'll change. That'll go away. But at this point, you are devoted to studying this person. When I was dating uh, Kaylin, my wife, I was devoted to studying her, right? I wanted to discover everything there was about her. I wanted to know her. I wanted to understand her. I wanted to listen to her. Communication was constant. I've got a box of letters. I wrote letters, right? You know you're in romance stage when guys are writing letters like crazy, like folding them into little stuff like hearts, like they pop out like that. I did all that stuff. I admit it, right? It wasn't like I was like, I got to write another letter. It was like, oh, I can't wait to write another letter. I love you, right? I didn't think about it. It was easy. I've got boxes of them to prove it. 
communication is all, it's constant. Like today, it's probably like we didn't have cell phones when we were growing up. We had the phone with a huge long cord that we would try to you know, go into the other room with a closed door so we could have the conversation. And, and time together, we ne- it was never enough. I mean, Dick and Janet can confirm, like, I was at their house for hours. I don't know how many times Dick's like, I think it's time to go, Sam, right? Like, I was, it's never enough time. Never enough time. That's the romance stage, right? And your desire for, for intimacy, I mean, it's, it's just, it burns. I remember, like, when you, when you first, like, when you first start dating, right? You first, I never forget, like, we go to a movie, right? Never made out a movie ever, because I think it's just gross and stupid. But, as we were sitting there, I knew when her knee brushed against mine. I mean, like, every bit of energy and, and sensory power was right there, like, oh yeah, we got some warmth right there between the legs, right? And if I, uh, it, it obviously progresses from there. It's like, oh, we're going to hold hands now. And you're thinking, my hands are so sweaty. But I don't care. It's like this big Petri dish of grossness together. Oh, yeah, right? And it's thrilling. Every part of it's thrilling. And you will spend all kinds of time together, all kinds of money, just on dumb stuff, right? All kinds. I remember the first five years of, of our marriage, we were um, kidless, right? We had no kids, and we had lots of money. And we have absolutely nothing to show for it. We have nothing to show for it. Like that first five years, is a, what did we do? Because I came out of college with debt. Like we could have, oh, I, well, I paid college debt. No, I didn't do that. We wasted it. Let's go out and eat. Yeah, like romance, wonderful. It's dumb. Dumb. But we're not, it's just, Time, energy, romance. Like, oh, this is great. Sacrifice for that person's easy and it's rewarding. You love to sacrifice. But for anyone who's been together for a length of time, you know that eventually things change. Now, we might be talking about different things, like, yeah, you yeah, know what changes. <laughs> right? I'm not, I'm not saying it goes terrible, but. The relationship changes, not necessarily for the worse, but it changes, right? You never have a first kiss again. So like, we're like, well, you're not romantic anymore. Well, it does change. You do go from bride to wife. You can't be bride forever. It changes. And the relationship just requires a little more work. It just things don't just come naturally. It requires a little more work and the feelings of romance aren't sparked like a huge blazing fire immediately again. Things change. And at some point in every relationship, you experience some level of disillusionment, some level of disappointment. The person that you were devoted to disappoints you because they fall short of your expectations. Not necessarily where they actually should be, just you had expectations. Whether you spoke them or didn't speak them, you had expectations. My wife didn't expect you know, my underwear to be flung over everywhere and my clothes to be spread out and beard hairs all over the sink. She didn't expect that. Disappointed her a little bit that I wasn't as clean as I appeared when I was at my house and my mom was cleaning everything. All right? There's some disappointment. It can be you know, silly things like that, but in some major things like, well, why, why don't you take me out anymore? 
no, I guess I just don't. Why are you wearing sweats all the time now? You used to dress up, right? You want to play that game? Let's go, right? But things change. Things change. Sometimes expectations aren't met because trust is broken, right? Something major happens. Sometimes it's because of tragedy that hits you both. Sometimes it's because of some kind of offense. But more often than not, I think it's just because you get used to the person. You just get used to him. Maybe you start to take it for granted a little bit. And depending on what you choose in that moment, when you're like, okay, I'm kind of not excited anymore, I'm kind of disillusioned, you have like a choice to make at that moment. You're either going to go press in to that relationship or you're going to kind of let it die. That happens. So I believe that a relationship with Jesus can kind of go through the same stage. If you notice as um, the Nazarenes experience Jesus, upon arrival into the synagogue, you notice the word they use to describe their experience of Him? They're astonished. They're astonished at Him and His teaching. Like, Whoa! I mean, he, he... This dude's amazing. His miracles are awesome. His, his compassion for the poor, incredible. His judgment on the religious self-righteous, comforting. Yeah, I love that you beat up those guys. His wisdom, like, dude, that guy's so smart. Oh my gosh, right? They're like just impressed. They're inspired. They're amazed. And, and they start to wonder, like, who is this guy? It sounds like when you like first meet that girl or guy of your dreams, right? And you're like, dude, who is that? She's amazing. Listen to her. Look at her. I want who is she? Like, that's what they're like. Who is this guy? Now I know this is difficult for guys, but I'm gonna try and do this. Do you remember when or if you ever felt like that about Jesus? Do you remember when you first fell in love with Jesus? If you fell in love with Jesus? See, it's unusual, I think, for people to kind of like, you know, I'm a Christian now. I've accepted Christ. And it's fantastic. All right? It seems to me that's not really the way it goes. It's similar to what we see with some of the baptisms, right? Where there's like, oh yeah, I love Jesus! And they're excited. Do you remember that? How excited you were to listen to His words? Kind of like that girl, right? Let's just talk. Just let's talk. And maybe guys, you never had that, right? But there was a time when you actually were engaging in conversation with her intentionally so, not at a duty, right? We wanted to hear what she had to say. You wanted to ask her questions and hear her answers. Like Jesus, right? Was there a time when like, okay, oh man, what is he going to say today? Do you remember when you look forward to listening to him? You look forward to spending time with him? When you, when you were excited to tell others about him? I remember when I got married, I was so excited to tell people I was married. Yeah, here's my wife. Galen, hey, have you met my wife? 
Let me tell you about my wife. Tell you what, this weekend I learned to appreciate my wife too. I'll tell you all about her. She keeps our house in order. My gosh, she set it up for me so it was easy and it was still hard. She's awesome. She's awesome. But like, when you talk about your Savior, right? Do you are you excited or is it like, okay, I probably should talk about Jesus. Um, do you know Jesus? Jesus died for your died for your sin. Like, is it like that or is it like, dude? tell you about my Savior. Do you ever remember being like that? That kicked my butt this week. And I'm a pastor. Right? Look, you're paid to be excited for Jesus, aren't you? I don't know if that's why I'm paid, but I certainly should be excited for Jesus. And I began to ask that question. Nazarenes are astonished by Jesus, right? Only for a moment they were persuaded this guy is who he says he is. I mean, this guy could be the dude. This is the Messiah. This is the King. This could be it. And then what happens? They start to ask questions. They start to remember. Where did this man get his wisdom and his mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Isn't isn't his mom Mary? Remember that teenage girl that got pregnant? Remember that? When the angel came and visited her? Remember that? Isn't that who it was? Isn't this Joseph's son? The carpenter? Like, didn't he used to build tables down the street? Don't I know his brothers, man? James, he's a real jerk, right? His sisters, right? We know them. Did you know Jesus' sisters? Half-sisters. But they start to go and think about all the ways that they're familiar with Jesus. And the Bible says that because of that, they got offended. They were offended. Now, The Pharisees, we've seen, have been offended by Jesus. And the Nazarenes have been offended by Jesus. But they're offended for kind of different reasons. And this happens too to to our our world and to us. Like the Pharisees, you got to remember, they were initially excited about Jesus too. All right, man, he's doing miracles. He's teaching the law. That's, That's awesome. They wondered that maybe this guy is the king. So they started to follow him. They started to ask him questions. They started to put scenarios before him to test him. But the seeds of offense were planted when he started eating with tax collectors and choosing them as disciples. Whoa, 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 whoa. The righteous king wouldn't do that. And the seeds of offense began to grow as he challenged their understanding of God's law and He healed a man on a Sabbath. And the seeds of offense grew even more when He began to forgive sins, which was blasphemy. And it even deepened, like complete when He said, oh, by the way, you're the children of the devil. That would offend me. So the Pharisees didn't like what Jesus said. Which is a very common thing. Like A lot of people um, love Jesus because they actually don't listen to what Jesus says. And if anyone who loves Jesus or says they love Jesus actually begins to read what Jesus said, you will be offended. Your intellect will be offended. Your emotion will be offended. Your experience will be offended. And only those whom Jesus says, you're my kid, will not be offended by it. 
Sinless Jesus affects us sinners. Offends us sinners. And when something doesn't match what I understand or doesn't feel right or doesn't match my reality, like Pharisee would be like, want nothing to do with you. So that's one way to get offended, but there's another way that I think is even more dangerous. And this is what caused me to ask myself some hard questions and, and begin to fear a little bit. The Nazarenes are not necessarily offended by what Jesus taught. They're offended by who they assume He is. What began is, who is this man, right? Quickly turns to, who does this man think He is? So even though they're, they're momentarily, and who knows how long that was, but they were inspired by His teachings, they were astonished by His works, it was quickly overwhelmed by what we'll call the contempt of familiarity. These guys knew the story or the legend behind His birth. They knew Him as a toddler. They knew Jesus as a child. They knew Jesus as a teenager. They knew what job He had before He was famous. They knew His brothers. They knew His sisters. Remember, these people grew up with Jesus for 30 years. They, small town, 30 years. Jesus lived in relative obscurity. Didn't start ministry. Had a three-year ministry. 30 years they knew Him. And those 30 years, they saw nothing that would made them think that He was anything more than a good man. Certainly not the God-man. So they reject Him because they're too familiar with Him. They assume that they know everything there is to know about Jesus. Regardless of what they might see with their own eyes, regardless of what they might hear, regardless of anything, they dismiss Him based on, really, history and the opinions of others that are talking with them. See, someone can know a lot about Jesus and not actually know Jesus. And the thing that really struck me was asking just this simple question. Especially for those of you who have known Jesus a long time. Maybe even 30 years. Has your familiarity with Him hindered your faith in Him? Have you made a lot of assumptions based off, I just know who Jesus is, but you actually don't know who Jesus is because you never talk to Him anymore? You listen to the opinions of others. You read lots of books about Him. Listen to podcasts of other preachers preaching about Him, but you actually don't talk to Jesus or listen to Him much at all. The question is this, whether you've been a Christian for one year or for 30 years, how has that relationship changed with Him over the years? You could ask the same question of a married couple. You've been married for 30 years now. What's it like? You're getting a couple different responses, aren't you? 30 years, yeah. 30 years. Yeah, it's been a long time. It's been a long time. We're getting through it, though. I mean, uh, marriage is it's hard work. Yeah, it's hard work. Yeah, Right? Or maybe you'll get the responses that maybe are a little less common of, oh, man, 
I had known what I know about this woman now, back then, I would have married her at age 15. I can count on my hand, this one, how many healthy, joyful marriages I know that truly could say that. I've been married, or will have been married for 20 years, and I can say, with her parents sitting here, I love my wife deeply, infinitely more than I did when I first met her. She is more than I ever thought she was, not less. And I expect to know more of her next year than I do this year. Rich. You connect that with our relationship with Jesus and you go, man, I've been, I've been with you for 30 years, Jesus. I don't know if I know anything more about you. I don't know if my affection for you has changed at all. It might have actually gone away. Is life becoming more surprising with Jesus or just more predictable? Is, is, is serving Jesus and, and spending time with Him more important to you or less important as those years have progressed? Basically, has all that you know about Jesus and all the familiarity you have with Jesus, has that brought you to a deeper sense of intimacy or not? Those are frightening questions. They were frightening for me. Because I've been a Christian for a long time. I believe I became a Christian when I was four years old. I remember clearly kneeling down at my bed in, in a house in Renton. And just because I lead a church does not mean, gets this, does not mean I have super deep, awesome intimacy with Jesus. Don't ever assume that about a pastor. I believe I have fantastic intimacy with Jesus. Don't get me wrong. It's like, what? You're not even a Christian? Not saying that. What I'm saying is, it's amazing how much we assume about others and maybe just about our own relationship with Christ. Nazarenes basically believe that Jesus is less than they is because they've gotten used to Him. Jesus says He's a prophet, right? He says, a prophet has no honor in his hometown. Like They mean like, you're a carpenter's son. You're a brother. You're this. And He's like, I'm a prophet. See, even if we don't verbally reject Jesus as Lord or prophet, I think sometimes the way we live, we functionally reject Him. At least as anything more than maybe a counselor or therapist we go to occasionally. Or a friend that, oh, I, I remember I, when I used to have that friend. They used to be really important in our life. Well, we're still friends, kind of acquaintances. I mean, we're on Facebook together. Like the Nazarenes, I think we... I think a lot of us, if we're honest, we would acknowledge what they did. Yeah, I used to live with him. I used to, I used to live with him. I know what he's like. I know what Jesus is like. So the question for all of us, and I, I kind of laid it out here to, like, I had to sit and ask myself these questions, so I'm like, here you go. You're getting them now. To ask yourself, am I in that place Am I in the place where Nazareth finds themselves? Here's how you know. You're no longer excited about your relationship with Jesus. I don't mean like, woohoo! Like, I'm not talking about that kind of excitement. I'm just saying, like, when you just really, in the privacy of your own home, when you're by yourself, whatever, you just really aren't very excited about it. 
He just doesn't turn the crank anymore. You remember when he did, but not anymore. Another sign that you're in that place is that you're not excited about other people's relationship with Jesus. In fact, when they get excited about it, you're like, just wait. Just wait. I know you're new to the faith. I know you love to read your Bible right now. I know you love to go to church. Yeah, give it a couple years and you'll see. You're in stinking Nazareth. If that's where you're at with that. And don't be putting the kibosh and the water on the fire of someone who's excited about the relationship with Jesus. It's the same thing do married couples do. With newlyweds, oh, look at them, they're making, they'll know. It's cute that they're holding hands now, but they'll know. Get a couple kids, get a job, it's difficult, can't pay the bills. And we'll see how happy you are, how romantic you are. Do you really look ahead like, when you first get married 20 years and go, yeah, that's what I want to be like. 20 years from now, I just want to be sick of you and just kind of tolerating you. And I hope we're friends still, but at least we got the ring, so we won't get divorced. But hey, really? So you don't get excited 